Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Travis, and today's guest is Gabriel Newman. Gabe is a storyteller, actor, and educator based in Vernon, British Columbia. For the past 14 years, he has led the historic and paranormal walking tour Ghost Tours of Vernon. He also created a community-based storytelling food project called Social Potluck, which had him trading food for stories in order to create intimate mini-community performance projects. His day job is as the educational coordinator at the Greater Vernon Museum and Archives, where he creates and presents educational programming for students and adults. Gabe? (laughs) Gabe? It is great to have you on the show. Thanks, Dale. (laughs) Uh, Welcome. It's nice to have you back in Newfoundland. How long has it been since you've been here? Uh, Well, it's been about 16 years since I've lived here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I came back once when my kids were really young, and that's been about it. But you know what? It kind of looks similar. It does look similar. There's a couple new things. A couple new things, and uh, you have a nice October, and that's Uh, that's new. I don't remember that. (laughs) We had it just for you. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Thanks. (laughs) Um, so I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk about your work uh, with the museum. So okay. how, how long have you been? How long have you been with the museum in Vernon? Um, I've been there as an employee for about a year and a half, I would say. But I've been involved with the museum for about the last eight years or so as a board member and involved in sort of the, that aspect of it. Yeah. But uh, I switched over. Well, position became available, and it actually allowed me to do the stuff I wanted to get done on the board level, but wasn't able to. And uh, and then they would pay me, so that actually seemed like a really hey. nice. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. nice. <laughs> oh, you know, whatever. That's all right. I'll do work with that. So, so what are your main duties then? Uh, my main duty is I'm the educational coordinator, and so I have to do uh, the school programming and field trips and organize uh, that aspect. So that's that's the part of the job that has to be done. Um, but because um, I look at the museum as a sort of a a, a place in the community I've been branching out and doing education for adults and trying to do education for teens and different projects uh, and to think in a different way about what education is um, so I still do the field trips and and uh, try to adapt them to the new curriculum that BC has just introduced uh, but also try to bring the museum into the community a little bit more which is probably not in my official job title, but would fall under miscellaneous other. <laughs> of course. Yeah. It's always important to have that in someone's job description. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how they justify other, me other changing. Other duties as required. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I also change light bulbs. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's that when myself. they pull that out yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for, for those people who are listening who may not know a lot about Vernon, British Columbia, uh, can you can you place it in kind of a geographical and historical context for us? Okay, uh, it is pretty much in the south-central section of British Columbia. And British Columbia is made up of mountain ranges that basically run north-south from Vancouver from the coast to the Rocky Mountains. And there's about five or six mountain ranges, and we're pretty much smack dab in the middle, and we are a desert. It is, uh, it is dry, it is hot, we have grapes, we have fruit trees, uh, we have ranches, and farming is sort of what, what brought people there to settle. Well, no, they came for gold, but uh, that didn't work out so hot for them. So uh, the next best thing was making money <laughs> off the next suckers who showed up, right. which is really sort of the history of the Okanagan. <laughs> so, uh, so how old is the community then? 
we are celebrating our 125th uh, anniversary of being incorporated. Yeah. Um, so the idea of Canada 150 is kind of funny for us because we had, I think, two ranches in the area. And so it was still a primarily, uh, you know, the Okanagan people were the primary inhabitants of the area yeah. back when Canada became Canada. Canada. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, how, how big is the town today and has it kind of grown and, or shrunk? Uh, it is approximately 40,000 people in the city of Vernon. We are a city. Uh, and we've gone through like bursts of growth. So it's very much has an element of sort of that Western explosion. And we got influenced by that. And so we went from sort of, you know, a few settlers rambling around aimlessly to a train showing up and fruit trees being planted and suddenly having 500 people. And then we burst up to like 3,000 people, but then we stayed at that for a really long time. And then we jumped up to 8,000 people and we stayed at that for a really long time. And then in the 1960s, that's when transportation suddenly became, you know, the vehicle. Because uh, before that, it was just trains and, you know, uh, paddle wheel boats. And, and once the roads started to connect us with the rest of the place, then we started expanding and expanding so to where we are now. And we were the capital of the area. We, like, sort of the, everyone thought we would be the, the big city for the area. And we were until about the 1960s. And then Kelowna, which most people have heard of, yeah. uh, sort of took over because they were... M- they were on the highways more than we were, and they became the central touchstone point and Coquihalla and airports and all of that kind of stuff. And then we just kind of got left behind as a <laughs> as a figment of the imagination of the Okanagan. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how far are you by car from Kelowna then? Uh, Forty five minutes. Oh, okay. So we're very close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we we are continuing to expand in a really uncomfortable way because Kelowna is not an affordable place to move to. Now it's incredibly expensive. And so a lot of people are living in Vernon, uh, which is driving up our housing market and and working in Kelowna. And so and a lot of the locals who have sort of born and raised go off to Alberta to work. And so we've got this really weird population where a lot of people who are from the area are working away. And a lot of the people that have moved to the area work away or have no historical connection to the place. So we, that really sort of summarizes a lot of what's happened. Like it's always sort of new people moving in, into the area. So when you're looking at living heritage, it's really like what decade are you talking right, because yeah. it changes so much. I'm curious about uh, kind of the, the cultural or ethnic makeup of the community too. Uh, there was an indigenous population, yes. as, as you said, and, and then kind of these waves of settlement. And, and where were people coming from when, they, when the Europeans started to arrive? The, the, early, the earliest settlers really sort of came with the gold rush. And so we got people from all over, but Canadians, Ontario, England, Ireland, you know, Scottish if we had to, you know, some French and Americans showed up. So it was primarily sort of these, you know, white males that just came rushing into the area looking for gold. Like it was just sort of an insane time. Yeah. Uh, and that was the initial wave. And then when fruit trees, uh, like once they realized you could actually grow fruit, we brought, they tried to bring in sort of, they called them settlers of high standing, sort of these sort of like socially conservative, like 
uh, wealthier people to do gentleman farming in in the area because fruit growing was you know very sort of like it was more like upper class uh, agriculture rather than you know potato farming or cabbage farming or stuff where your nails got dirty. Hmm. And what, was there a was there a Chinese immigration in in the area as well? And that came along as well with the end of the railway, and so we end up having one of the largest Chinatowns in uh, the interior of BC. None of which you can see if you came to town now. Huh. So it. It started, it exploded, it lasted until about the 1970s and slowly burned down in sections. And now we have one building with sort of a tenuous link to that past. But if you don't know about it, you would have no reason to know or know that that occurred. Yeah. So are some of those more hidden stories part of the, the mandate of the museum then to tell to tell some of that, that history of the, the community? Uh, I'm sure they would have said yes. Um, but it really hasn't been part of, if you come into our museum, uh, you really won't see anything other than, I think, a single panel write-up. Right. Um, and that's fairly new within the last five years. And that's true for the Ukrainian population, which was incredibly large. Uh, we had a really large Japanese. We still have a really large Japanese population. And most recently, it's actually the sort of the Sikh community. Uh, Punjabi is the second most spoken language in the area. Yeah. Yeah. And you would have absolutely no idea if you came to Vernon that that was the case. Yeah. So uh, how old is the museum then? The museum has, oh boy, you're asking me a tough question. Yeah, you like want hard, dates and numbers from a museum? Where, uh, <laughs> like, I mean, is it a decade old? Is it a, no, it's it about forever? 60 years old okay, or so. Yeah. So it started back in sort of, I think, around the 40s or so, and we moved into our current building, which is one of these centennial buildings, uh, 50 years ago. Right. Uh, so it's been around for a long time, and it started basically from a taxidermist personal collection. Oh, interesting. And yeah, okay. it sort of evolved out of that, right? And I, and I think that that's kind of, a, that's kind of how a lot of community museums yep. start. Someone has a collection of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and and it is kind of the 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 kind of the waspy history that gets uh, gets shared. You know, like it's it's kind of a group of well-meaning, interested upper middle class white people who yeah. who say this is our museum and this is our story as a community. Yeah. And some of those, like the Ukrainian stories or the the, the Sikh stories, maybe they're not as reflected in in our community museums as they could be potentially. Yeah, well, definitely, and and. Part of it, uh, part of the justification, I believe, is that they weren't part of that settler story as much. Yeah. Right? They may have come after that initial settler story. And we love that settler story. Right? We came and we conquered this land and we improved it. The word I always come across in those early articles is about improving the land. And that was a lot of the justification for actually uh, taking away some of the, uh, the land, like the reserve land for, from the, the First Nations people, was because they weren't improving the land. Right? Of course, they were thinking the land is perfect. It land is provided fine. We've been doing fine for the last 10, 15,000 years. <laughs> Thank be, you very much. It would be improved for those white guys moved back to England. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be the only way to improve it. We can't seem to do that. Yeah. Uh, but that idea of sort of that conquering the space. Yeah. Uh, and, and those other storylines don't really fit in there. And, and you know what? The storyline is kind of problematic if you look into it too much, right? So it doesn't make, make those settlers seem as... Heroic, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, we've got the Chinese head tax, and and you know the internment camps in World War One, and which we had in town. Uh, 
you know, which is, you know, fun fact. Uh, <laughs> and so it's always been sort of my job to bring those things up, not necessarily because I want to be all scandalous, but because it's interesting and it proves that you know, we we were settled by human beings. Yeah, and history is messy and complicated, yeah. like like all human interactions are. Uh, one one of the things that I, I know you you were talking about the other day was um, about one of the workshops, a very well attended workshop about kind of rope making. Yeah, um, just kind of showcasing some of that indigenous knowledge. So t- tell us a little bit about that project and and what it involved. Um, so that particular one or the yeah, overall I, field school? Yeah, we'll start with that one, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was part of our field school project, which is getting people or doing projects outside of the museum, working with local, um, I want to say knowledge holders, but that it seems to indicate something else. But it's just people in the community that know how to do things that maybe not everybody knows how to do. And I was lucky enough to team up with Ruby Alexis, who's a, a silk artist, and, uh, and she makes what's called Indian hemp or Indian ropes. And that used to be a major trade item for uh, the Okanagan people. And it's made out of dog bane. And so we went out, we harvested a bunch of dog bane and, uh, and learned how to twist and create the, the rope, which is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult for me to do. I am <laughs> sure. not a crafty person. There yeah. were some people there that made, did just fine. Thank you very much. But for me, I kind of gave up in a bit of a hissy fit. Went, this is dumb. <laughs> um, and I took pictures. I'm like, I'm here to document this. Uh, and I was really surprised because you don't know, like, who's going to... You, you offer these things up to the community, right? You don't know. And we, we were full up before we'd even had an article in the paper, and we had an article in the paper and people are calling and we're putting people on a wait list. And, and the people who were showing up, I can't really categorize, which was really interesting. Mm. So you get a wide range of people. We had, a wide, we had like families, we had kids, we had some teenagers. We, you know, we, have, we have your typical you know, fabric artist that shows up because they're like, ooh, I haven't worked with this fabric before. Um, so you, know, you, have, you have a few artists, but then you have some seniors that are just like, this is really interesting. Uh, and so I was really proud to host it. And Ruby was uh, great because she took us to, this is where I usually harvest. But if you're going to harvest, this is the process and you have to give thanks and you can't take too much. And so we can only take this much. And like you, uh, there is a, a ritual and a ceremony around that. So you need to be aware of that. Right. Not that like you have to do that, you know, person with, you know, white, but just to be aware of the process. And then we went to a traditional fishing camp area and hung out on the beach. And that's where we made the rope. And so she was able to combine sort of the stories of the sea people, which I, I would say 98% of the people there didn't know those particular stories. And so it anchored it into the place where we were actually doing it. And that made it really powerful. Um, and that was certainly her her incentive. And I was like, I was cheering her on the whole way because it, it really brought that knowledge and that information home. Mm-hmm. And now this this series of workshops that, that you've been doing, the Field School yeah. Project. So you, you do some that are those kind of cultural mm-hmm. uh, cultural pieces. And then, and then you're also trying to get some hipsters into the museum. Yeah, which totally, I, totally. Which I think yeah. is fun too. Yeah, and, and I always get hung up on words of like traditional knowledge and that kind of thing because, you know, 
in BC anyway, when you say traditional knowledge, it almost always means First Nations knowledge. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is necessarily. And so I'm like, there are a lot of people around that know how to do a lot of things. And I have a small farm and I've been trying to teach myself how to do things. And one of them is how to use a scythe, right? I get these great big thistles. I want to knock them down. Someone said, oh, you buy, buy a scythe and use it. And, but it's all in the technique, they say. And I'm like, well, that's great. <laughs> the technique doesn't come in a box. No, no, right? <laughs> uh, and so I'm like, where can I find someone to teach me how to do that? And sure. so I've done a, a variety of ones which are definitely aimed at, like, uh, the artisanal, you know. Uh, I, I want my feed, uh, my field artisanally uh, cut uh, with a scythe. Uh, so how to use a scythe. I did one with how to shave with a straight blade razor where I partnered with a, uh, with a barber shop and they gave a demonstration. Um, we've got one coming up on how to set a turntable because different music needs different setups. And we've got two turntable stores in town. I was not aware of this, yeah. um, but apparently that's really important. And just trying to appeal to people who, uh, I'm trying to appeal to people who are interested in stuff. Yeah. Right. We're really? Is, yeah. Just curious. Yeah. And it's like, you may not do that, but that's kind of a fun thing to check out. And so you're not going to get it anywhere else. So who came to the side workshop? Uh, we had a... a <laughs> It was a weird collection of people. Uh, we had uh, two fellows in their 20s who had never even thought about scythes until about two weeks earlier when they went to a yard sale and saw one for sale, made a joke about it. Driving home from that, they, they drove past an elderly woman who was scything the side of her hill. And they went, what? That just, what? Didn't I, we just see one of those? And then they opened up the paper and there was a scythe for sale. And then they saw this thing and they're like, well, this is it's a calling. It's yeah. meant to be. <laughs> I need to find out what on earth this thing is. And like, uh, and so we had a couple guys like that. I had a middle-aged couple that were just like, I just thought this would be a really interesting thing. I have like, I don't really want to own a scythe. I just like, I'm sure it's going to be all full up. This is just so interesting. Uh, and so a few people that were it like... My, it was my parents, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like something my parents Yeah, like, yeah. just like, why not? Like, what else are you going to do on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon? Let's learn how to use a scythe, right? Uh, and then, so uh, a bunch of people had shown up and, and the, the presenter started talking and then this truck rumbles in and this, this old German fellow gets out and he's like, do you have a sharpening stone? And the guy who was presenting said, ah, oh, no, I couldn't find the sharpening stone. Oh, do you have, you have a vice, you know, hold it all, all in? Uh, no, no, I couldn't find any of that stuff. And he says, okay. And he goes and opens up the back of his truck and he gets out a couple sawhorses and he gets out a sharpening stone and he gets out an <laughs> anvil and he gets out the hammers and he sets it all up and he was this old carpenter. Right. And he built, he brought out two of the sides he'd built himself and he taught us all how to like hammer them out. Right. And it's, oh, this is the same thing you do with swords, you know? And, and he showed us the whole process for like how to sharpen it and to get it so like so sharp that, you know, you could just like slice your fingertip off without even knowing you were doing it. Uh, and then we went and like played in a field for an hour with a scythe. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't really know who's going to show up. And part of the reason I set it up because I'm always interested in stories uh, is that I find people are more likely to share stories if I don't ask them to share a story. Because if I say, tell me a story, their brains will just kind of go, I don't have any stories. Yeah, I find the same thing, yeah. But if we do something else, some other activity, 
This guy was talking about when he lived in Germany and how his dad used to scythe in perfect rows. And then somebody else would say, oh, I remember that. from." And so we lined up starting talking about like that whole process and that whole uh, culture and telling the stories around it without like me ever saying, come and here's some stories about, yeah. you know, uh, farming. You know, I, that, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the social potluck idea. Okay. I, know, I know that's not your, your work persona, but it is something that you've been engaged with over the yeah. last couple of years. So explain to people how the social potluck idea works. Okay. Well, it certainly inspired a lot of what I'm doing with the field school in many ways. I'll try to make it brief, but I have trouble doing that because it was my <laughs> master's thesis. Yeah. And so I can keep it down to about 45 minutes. All right. Brief summary. Go uh, I uh, work with a, a community and host about five small dinners. In those, at those dinners, I will trade dinner. I'll, I'll prepare the dinner. I'll make it from scratch in exchange for a story. So all they have to do is bring a story, and I'll feed them. I record those stories, so it's probably about 25, 30 stories. I give myself a few days. Either myself or myself and a partner will take those stories and turn them into small little performances. And ideally, a week later, we host a great big potluck, and all those people who came to those story tables and they can bring a guest as well, will come to a large venue, they bring food as a potluck, and we will perform their stories back to them. That's the very short version of what we do. So I've, I've set it up and I've done it within nine days. Go into a community, hold four or five dinners, collect those stories, turn them into performances, rehearse it, and perform it back in nine days. Uh, which is crazy mm -hmm. but wonderful and part of my my thinking around it was you know if, if you travel and you go into a community that place is the stories that you hear when you're there right and so you can go to a town and you can have a great experience or a bad experience but it's based on sort of the stories that that you create or that you encounter and it kind of frames everything so my argument is that each one of those performances is a piece of true community theater because it represents the stories that live there right now and it represents the values of the community and their interests uh and you know it, it did uh, use the word Pollyanna. It is a bit of a love-in of just like how interesting and varied our community is, but it celebrates like the living heritage that is in the community at the moment, and it makes people f like I love that community at the end, right? And the people that are there really appreciate what is in the community and who's in the community. So, what what stories kind of stand out in your memory that that were part of that process? Oh boy. Well, I could send you my thesis. I've got a number of those there. Uh, let's see. What stories stand up? Boy, I'm, I, of course, I'm, I'm drawing a, a, a blank. It, it, I will say I changed my format a little bit. I originally started off by asking for any stories. And so I had stories about people going to Jerusalem and having this incredible experience at the Temple of the Mount, right, with, you know, uh, a Palestinian woman and a Jewish woman praying together. You know, like there were those stories which are like, oh, my God, you know, bawling, you know, like just amazing. Uh, and there's stories of like moving to Vernon or, you know, trips that go poorly. But I realized that was quite broad. And so the last time I did it, we went to Port Townsend. Uh, this town in uh, Washington, and all the stories had to take place on the Olympic Peninsula. And so it really forced it to be 
about this place and that changed the whole project right because it really became about who was there and and what people value there um, of course at this I will I, the one that stands out to me and and sadly it it is a story because I am telling it but we never presented it as a story uh, I we 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 do we <laughs> try to keep this short because uh, <laughs> it's it's so weird and I want to do it justice to the people and I don't want to uh, insult the the teller. But oh man, we held these dinners in this beautiful old house, which was also the artist in residence spot, and we're inviting people in and the people's names are on the list and and this woman shows up. Uh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Uh, keep it PG. Relatively. Okay. Okay. So, so then, then I won't quote her directly. Uh, uh, she, she walks in this short, like Jewish, like Manhattan lady, and goes, "Holy blank! It smells good in here." <laughs> and like wanders in, and I'm like, "Who is that? Like their name's not on the list." It's like, "Oh, that's so and so. She's joining us." Uh, okay, and she starts pouring herself some wine, and. We start telling the stories, and it's going around the circle, and she's drinking wine and nodding off and waking up and drinking wine and nodding off. And it comes to her, and her her head kind of bobs up, and she looks around and goes, Tomorrow, my wife, who I'm married to in two states in, in the United States, is going in for surgery. She is not legally married to me in Washington. So when she goes in for surgery, I can't be with her. And we are separated. And that was it. And, and then she had some more wine and fell asleep. And we kind of wrapped up the evening and, and carried on. And, uh, and then we're, us as performers are like, what are we going to do with this? Like, how can we perform? Like, that was, it was just more like a, a confession. It was a, a longer rant than that, but it was, it was still very short, but that was the general idea. And like, how do, how do we perform this back? And we, we had a week, and her wife uh, went through surgery, and we were checking in on her, how did it go, and all of that kind of stuff. And we got news that she was fine, and this woman showed up to the performance, and so... All we did was say, you know, so-and-so showed up. This was the concern she presented to us. How is she doing? She's 100%, 100%. And, and in the middle of this, which one of the key points that I left out, uh, not so good with the storytelling, I haven't told this story in a while, was the election in the United States. So from the time that she had told that first little rant to the time that we found out that her wife was was good Washington had voted to allow gay marriage uh-huh. right so that, that was one of those kind of like uh, I, I will always remember that partially because she was a character um, but uh, the response in the room was was incredible right and afterwards i felt just blessed 
to be there, like I felt lucky. Like how often do you go and you do some work and you're like, I was so lucky to do that. I think that's a, as good a place to end as any. So thank you for coming on the show. Thanks if people want to hear more about you or learn more about you or the Vernon Museum, how can they how can they find out more information? Well, you can you can Google the Vernon Museum. Uh, we have an incredibly outdated website, which I hear that sometime in the next seven years will be updated. And you have a pretty good Instagram account. Yes, though. yes, absolutely. Uh, Ver- a Greater Vernon Museum. Uh, I like to post stuff all the time, but usually it's a little different than your usual museum postings. I recommend it. Check it out. Thanks, Gabe. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.